This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think that if your listeners think about how impactful getting narcotics out of people's closets and bathrooms is, sounds so mundane and stupid, but that's where the problem is. That's how it perpetuates. It's not perpetuated because there are Mexican folks who make heroin or fentanyl now. It's not their fault. They're feeding our addiction, and that addiction has come from inappropriate prescribing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Benjamin Davies from the University of Pittsburgh Department of Urology. Welcome to the show, Ben. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. This has been an episode I've been extremely excited about, and as I kind of prepared and reflected on my own practice patterns as it pertains to narcotics, I felt a little embarrassed to know I've recently changed institutions and I have no idea what my patients are going home on. And this is clearly suboptimal. I'll just kind of throw that out there. The other thing that I'll just confess is that typically when I talk to patients and they say, you know, I don't know about narcotics, they make me nervous. I would generally say, you know, we actually have fairly good data that indicates if you're taking narcotics in a post-operative setting, the rate of addiction is actually quite low. In my prep for this podcast, I've maybe discovered otherwise. Well, I know it's not that that's not wrong. It's just that, is that appropriate? I mean, even if, if something's low, it doesn't mean that you're not nervous about it. I mean, if you go into a surgery, the chance of you having a problem may be low, but you're just allowed to be nervous about it. I think more importantly, I would reframe the way you think about the whole issue. And the reframing may take you just a second, but I'm going to, if you'll allow me, I want you to reframe the way you think about it. So if you do a surgery on somebody, let's say it's a nephrectomy, minimally invasive nephrectomy. What you're concerned about is that they're, they're gonna have pain after. You don't want your patient to have pain. But what if I told you that there is decent data, randomized trial data, suggesting that a non-opioid methodology has the same patient reported outcome as the opioid methodology. So if you knew that and you just reframed it and thought, well, I'm gonna give you what, what I know at least based on the data, best available data, you'll have the same amount of pain that if you had narcotics, well, I'm not going to give you the narcotics in, the, in that sense, because I don't want you to have that 1% or 2% chance uh, of getting a substance abuse disorder. But I would ask you to think more bigger than yourself and your one patient, because one of the signal problems with opioids is not necessarily you and your patient, because that is a, probably a great relationship, I would suppose. And you probably think you're, you probably think and are right that your patient is not going to go out and hand out the opioids that they may or may not have. The problem, the distinct problem, the well 
researched problem is diversion. That is, your nice patient goes home with their 30 of oxy, they only need four or five, and so fine, it sits in their cabinet, whatever. But their nephew comes over, their niece comes over, their cleaning lady or whoever the hell has access to that closet takes that medication because they already have a problem with substance abuse. So think of it bigger than just you and your relationship with your patient and think of it as a global problem. And you'll find yourself being a little more uncomfortable with handing out those large prescriptions. And maybe you should just stick to the four or five tablets and not the 30. That's invaluable. So, and maybe I painted myself as a little particularly nefarious. You know, I usually do spend a few minutes the day of discharge, you know, fairly prescriptive. At 12 o'clock, I would take a thousand milligrams of Tylenol. At four o'clock, I would take 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. At eight o'clock, go back to the Tylenol. And I actually draw it on the whiteboard, encourage them to take a picture. And I say, this is the backbone of your pain regimen. You will have some narcotics. And we'll kind of get into the prescriptive parts of this, um, you know, as we kind of move on. So you mentioned one to 2%. In my literature review, Ben, I saw numbers that were pretty staggering, six to 18% rates of abuse. And that kind of blew my mind. Any, any thoughts on what, what is the number that you tell patients here? So I would say that we need to go into the specialties a little bit differently to take a dive into that data. The urologic data is one to 2%, at least the few larger studies that we've done in America and Canada, which for me is a terrible number. And, and those studies that were done in urology all really come from procedures where I cannot believe they give narcotics for things like infertility procedures, TERPs, TURBTs, vasectomies all of which do not need narcotics by any stretch of the imagination. But in those settings, and that's a pretty large paper just a few years ago at a, um, in the EU, it showed about a 1% to 2% chance of persistent opioid use after being prescribed. You have to remember, that doesn't mean they're substance abuse disorder patients, but they're persistently using opioids. So we can get a little bit into the weeds with that definition. But in other specialties, particularly spine surgery, cancer surgeries, it can be as high as 16% or 20% in some instances where there's persistent opioid prescriptions happening a year or so or greater after. It's not necessarily their abuse patients at that point, but there is persistent use of opioids. And some of that's a little bit weedy talk, but yeah, it's a big deal. And giving somebody has a distinct possibility, you make them have a substance abuse disorder. I appreciate that. And I think a takeaway for when patients kind of ask, it's like, I don't want to get addicted not brushing it off, you know, also just making sure that they realize that we do have policy statements on, you know, best practice management of opioids, you know, by the AUA and so forth. And I've read those. I'm not sure that I really took much away other than, you know, be responsible when prescribing opioids. You know, you're hurting me because I help write those. So you're stabbing me in the heart. I'm just kidding. Well, Ben, I mean, you know, guideline and policy statements is like, what is my practical takeaway here? It's like, I'm not sure. No, no, I get it. And, you know, you can imagine writing those types of things. We have to be sensitive to both sides. So as much as we want to write statements that really get people, stop them from giving lots of opioids, we recognize that opioids are also a mainstay of post-operative pain care. We're not trying to take away opioids where they're necessary. So there is a kind of interplay there in how, how to be used in the right way. In my own practice, and I'm an oncologist, I only do oncology. I only do both minimally invasive and open surgery. I almost never give narcotics postoperatively discharged with the narcotics. They may get some perioperatively, but to me, and I've proven it in various different studies, that it's just not necessary. And if they do need it, 
I would know before they leave the hospital. Yeah. So into the weeds here, they're not going home with a prescription generally, typically in your hands. Absolutely not. And do you set an expectation that if their acetaminophen and said based backbone doesn't get the job done, that they can call the clinic and a provider will provide them that? So that is true that that could happen, but I actually don't, I don't set that expectation because I think that really implants in their mind that if they have discomfort, that they need narcotics. So we have a very easy two-way system of communicating with patients. So if they were to call two or three days later with complaints, I would call them or the nurse practitioner would call them and assess what the issue is. It's almost never specific pain with the incision. It's usually GI complaint or not, something like that. And I can only count a handful of times where we've actually gone on the computer and sent some narcotics. But yes, we can relatively easily do that. But I don't say, oh, in case you have more pain, I'm going to give you narcotics in the future. No, absolutely not. I think that's psychologically not the way I would work that. Yeah. And, and we'll talk a little bit about setting expectations here in a moment. But do you know of any data regarding kind of increase in clinic volumes or patient satisfaction when you transition to a non-narcotic based philosophy? Funnily enough, I may have had a small paper in a small journal about this. And I don't want to get into like, hey, this journal, I wrote this, this, but in general, yes, we have looked at this in a prospective fashion and split patients into non-opioid pathways and opioid pathways and studied what I think is largely understudied in urology in general, patient reported outcomes, what patients feel, what domains change. And we've looked at this over and over and over. It has never been any difference between the two. And this isn't just urology data, although I'm happy to put my name to the urology data. This was born out of general surgery data, mostly. And they never saw a difference either. And that's actually been published in New England Journal and a whole host of places that for the non-opioid pathways, the, pain, the patient-reported data is exactly the same, if not better, than the opioid pathways. And you can imagine why. When you're on opioids, you don't want to get out of bed. Your GI issues are pretty in the forefront. And you're nauseated. There's an idiosyncratic reaction to opioids that patients get that actually can increase their sensitivity and increase anxiety. That's well-described opioid anxiety-related phenomena. So you don't get any of that. And if people want to look up the paper we wrote in cancer, God bless them, and they would see those PROs, which we have outlined. Yeah. And actually, I don't think we have to look very much beyond our specialty. I think we could all recall our pediatric urology rotations where prescribing narcotics was, you know, an extremely infrequent event. And I think we're revisiting this idea of our, you know, our children inherently that different. Is a 16-year-old that had, you know, reflux surgery that different from an 18-year-old that underwent, you know, X, Y, and Z. Some of the things that I kind of encounter or just kind of reflected on, there's so many myths around non-narcotic-based options and particularly NSAIDs. And maybe I'll just kind of float some of these by you and, and get your perspective. I still see, not infrequently, on kind of preoperative instructions, no NSAIDs for a week. And any thoughts on that, Ben? I do some of the larger surgeries that I think urologists do, and I've never put that or thought about that. That's a ridiculous thing. You can have the NSAIDs for a week. And, and what about oral Tylenol or ibuprofen on while patients NPO in the rare circumstances where, you know, they're not able to get, or even let's just say clears. You know, this is another thing that I've just kind of heard. I mean, Tylenol, I like IV Tylenol, you know, right after surgery, if somebody's kind of out of it still, you can't give them PO, but that can be expensive and the hospital ordinarily won't let you give you more than one dose. But that's, yeah, you can take PO Tylenol post-op, no problem. What about bleeding risk? This is one of my favorite with Toradol. 
That's insane. Yeah. I mean, you're purposely trying to get me riled up. There's no bleeding risk with Tardol. Full stop. Status post-radical nephrectomy. What about it? I mean, everybody's creatinine goes up a little bit that first few days. They can take Tordal, no problem. Not an issue. Right. And I think this is important. And, you know, of course, this is not like there's not, you still have to be a doctor and kind of take care of a patient. But, you know, in my mind and without having kind of gone intrinsically or deep into the physiology, if you've got a good functioning kidney and your kidney function took a bit of a hit because you lost a kidney, really, there's not going to be an intrinsic renal damage that's affiliated by, with the NSAIDs. That's a good point. I mean, that brings up the whole topic that I guess the Cleveland Clinic talked about maybe 15, 20 years ago with partial nephrectomies, intrinsic versus intrinsic GFR changes. I mean, GFR changes are not all the same, right? If you have hypertension or diabetes and your GFR is now bad, that's bad. We can't do anything about that. But if you have a partial nephrectomy or a nephrectomy or you know, GFR changes, that's probably fine. You're not really a reflection of your physiology. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for partial nephrectomy as well, you know, it's kind of a part of our standard pathway at various institutions, Memorial, UT Southwestern, and we're kind of working on that here as well. I actually don't have much of a problem in that department. Any, any comment there? No, no problem giving Tylenol or NSAIDs to a partial nephrectomy patient at all. And just a little bit more globally, kidney dysfunction. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important for your listeners to remember that we're talking about very small courses of medication. We're not talking about putting them on for 30 days. There's nothing going to happen in that three to five day window. Yeah. And I, and I will admit, I'd like to consider myself a little forward thinking when it comes to non-narcotics, but sometimes if they've got some pretty good chronic kidney disease, say GFR is between 45 and 60, I will do ibuprofen, you know, smaller doses, ease on into it versus like 30 a total. It's a total hand wavy type of option, but kind of makes me feel better. No, and I think I'm definitely in that scene. Like if somebody's like on their third partial nephrectomy and the GFR is 30, I'm not slugging them with, you know, 30 a turtle. I totally get that. But it also has to do like, you know, we're doctors. So did they get a block? How is their pain? If they're not having pain, I'm not going to give them anything. I mean, they can take a little narcotic while they're in the hospital to try and get them over the edge. You know, we're not insane about it. We just don't want them to go home with narcotics if they don't need them. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. So maybe let's kind of like dive into the kind of mechanics and, and practical implementation about this. You know, so patient comes in, grade group four, prostate cancer, decides a prostatectomy is the best option for them. When do you start this kind of conversation? So I would say one, I mean, so this is like every day in the clinic, like multiple times a day. I would say the conversation starts once they decide to have the surgery and say, hey, Dr. Davies, appreciate the conversation. Now we're going to, I just, you know, I'm ready to book the surgery. And I go, okay, well, give me exactly 30 seconds to walk you through our pain program. We have a nice pamphlet, which has it all described for you, but I'm going to walk you through it anyway. And I think that's part of what your listeners should get by too. You need to have readily accessible pamphlets so you don't have to spend more than 10 seconds on this. Here's my pamphlet. Here's what we do. Yeah, I'm going to have to have you email me the pamphlet as well as your PowerPoint that you provided to the residents, you know, in your kind of pre-post intervention. Uh... My PowerPoint is very long. You may, you, may, you may not want that. But the paperwork we got actually from Music Urology. So they actually have a website you can go right to and pull all the paperwork off or email them and they'll put your own institution's media on there so you don't have to worry about not using the right temper. They'll give you all of that. And I'm happily... I'm involved with that. 
So that Michigan is annoyingly in front of us in most things in this regard as well. But anyway, I say, here, look, this is how we do it. You're going to get put to sleep before you go to sleep. You're going to get some tablets. They're going to help with your pain control. You're going to get this block before you get put to sleep. Paravitubal block, it's super easy. You won't barely feel anything. Once you wake up, we'll control your pain with some IV stuff. It's not narcotics, but it's pretty powerful. And as soon as you're up walking around, which is only a few hours after the surgery, we'll start you on the pills. The pills are Motrin and Tylenol, super easy. The incisions are small. You're going to feel a little bit of pain that first day. It's kind of like you got in a fight, but not terrible. That's the conversation. And maybe I'll talk a little bit about bladder spasms, but that, you know, that is really it. And the pushback is negligible. People understand that we are now, today as we sit, at the highest point of mortality deaths and opioid-related mortality deaths ever in the history of America. And I think it's easy to kind of walk through life and think, oh, I just live, I'm a surgeon, I'm just giving pills. You know, we're not, I'm, I have nothing to do with that problem. But the reality is we all have something to do with that problem. And it mostly has to do with diversion, which I alluded to at the beginning of the program. Every time we put more of this stuff into the community, it's more diverted to other people. And if you ask any substance abuse disorder patient, it's something like 90%, 9-0, got pills before they walked to heroin, before they walked to fentanyl. And so when you see survey data that says 90% got it from pills, I think as physicians, we should do everything we can do not to get those pills out into the community. And by the way, we've done pretty well. The, the numbers of, of, for prescribing narcotics have fallen pretty rapidly in the past five years. So we were terrible when oxycodone came out in 1996. Oxycodone and, and Purdue Pharma really shoved it down America's gullet. I mean, in a really hard fashion. And they infiltrated every part of our life. They infiltrated the hospitals. They infiltrated our academic scholarly data. They got to everybody in a very well-coordinated fashion mostly by the Sackler brothers. And there's lots of interesting, compelling data about them, uh, which obviously has been in the media and caused billions of dollars worth of lawsuits. So I don't need to recapitulate those. And there's also some great books. If your listeners are interested in great books, there's a whole host of them that they really should read. And let, you know, let me just find them, all the ones that I like, because I like to be a proselytizer for a good book. Yeah. Well, while you're doing that, Ben, just two comments. One, I think disposal and the disposal conversation is is important and there's these things like bring back your prescription rallies and i'm just like i'm thinking is my like 78 year old cystectomy patient gonna drive like across town and i used to jokingly say flush them down the toilets try to sell them or give them to me as like a joke and i've kind of gone away from that as you know even though the course of my six years as an attending where i think the pandemic's gone from something that's the opioid epidemic, if you will, from something that was now it's, it's really real. So now I, I would generally say flush them down the toilet if you don't use them. Yeah. I mean, I would say that in general, I wouldn't flush, I wouldn't flush them down the toilet. There's actually some data on flushing down the toilet, which doesn't look good for some, from some fishies. I mean, if you want the fish to be sick, <laughs> I would say, I would say, don't give it to them. Honestly, cystectomy patients, and we have this coming out the next AUA, they really don't need narcotics. I mean, if, if you did it robotically, they definitely don't need narcotics. And um, I'll let Mount Sinai's data stand on its own for that. But if they did an open, I'm still old enough. I still do open cystectomies. I know, don't get, don't yell at me. It's the only thing I do open regularly. No, I just picked a cystectomy patient because they're typically a little bit they're older. They're a little older and they're sometimes frail. 
I don't give them that they, they don't need narcotics. I mean, they're in the hospital for four or five days on average. By the time they get to the fifth and sixth day, they very rarely need narcotics. I just don't give them. I don't want them to have them. They're the wrong person to have narcotics at home with. I really want your listeners, if they're like, oh, Davies is going on and on and he's boring as hell. I want them to read a good book about narcotics. And my favorite one is by Sam Quinones. And he's, a, he's really a great writer. And he's written two. One was called Dreamland. And the most recent one is called The Least of Us. And they're brilliant, brilliant books. And because he can write like a real writer and speak like a professor, you really get into how things have happened and really dynamics of how things got to us. And really is a shame of how doctors help perpetuate the problem. And our job now, hopefully, as urologists, is we can kind of draw back and stop, stop it from going. But we haven't done a great job as urologists of drawing back. If, I, if we look like SEER data, I hate to bring up data, it's annoying. But if you look at SEER data and just say, Ural, how many, you know, what percentage of urologists give XYZ narcotics for their cystectomy? It's horrific. I mean, it's like most, the vast majority in the 80th, 80th percent give like 30 plus oxys. The, the data, unfortunately, I've yet to publish it because it's hard to get published because nobody's that interested anymore. But it's horrific how bad it is. I mean, it's on par with how bad we are giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy for bladder cancer or any metric that you could come up with. If you're like, I can't believe urologists are so bad at that. But we're worse when it comes to narcotics. Yeah, no. And this is incredibly not only educational, but entertaining. And I will just throw out one plug. I have no kind of affiliation or financial tie. It's kind of a wild show. It's called The Pharmacist. It's on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it, but it's... Yeah, I have. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. But it's a, it's a pretty interesting story of a, you know, ultimately a father who loses his son secondary to narcotics. And he he's an interesting guy, I'll just say, but he kind of shares his journey digging into the whole narcotic situation as you kind of talked about as well. So I think amazing books out there, some pretty interesting shows also. All right, just to kind of to bring it back. So at that first decision to undergo a surgery, that's when the conversation first initiates. Then is it really in the preoperative setting where they're getting some Tylenol or and maybe some gabapentin? Is that generally next? Or do you have to start the night before? recommend taking some ibuprofen and Tylenol the night before you, or you just start the morning off? Yeah, I just start the morning off. And I have to say, like, I don't really like, although I'm known like for this as a academic thing, it's not like I think about this too much and go like day to day thinking about, Ooh, my next patient, I have to do no opioids because I'm known for it. I mean, I have to say like, I don't think about it at all because I have a system set up and I just go around doing my surgeries and hand, trying to take a pair of patients best I can. So I don't start anything the night before. That morning, they get Neurontin, Tylenol, and Celebrex um, usually before they go to sleep. Then they get a shot, a single shot of Repivacaine, Decadron, and Presidex. It's called a Quadratus Lamborum shot. And is that done in pre-op or is that done in the OR? Yeah, it's done in pre-op. That's just an institutional thing. I know there are some enterprising urologists who want to do their own blocks. Actually, you can officially bill for it if you wanted to. But I don't have such, now I got your interest. No, no, I'm happy. I'm at Academic Medical Center. You do your thing. This is your exactly. area of expertise. But there are, there are non-academic urologists who can bill and appropriately bill if they put the block in. But you and I are in the same boat here. I don't have any interest in that at all. And then we do total intravenous anesthesia. We don't, so we propofol, ketamine, Prestex while they're asleep. They get a shot of Tordol just as they wake up. And then it's Tylenol, Motrin the rest of the time. 
Yeah, and I'm certainly, I think this is incredibly practical and I, I squarely put it, you know, I'm relying on my anesthesia colleagues. It's not like I'm, a, you know, kind of just along for the ride, but you know, even like gabapentin, it's kind of like it comes in and out of favor. You know, some anesthesiologists are into it, some of them are not. I think some practical things, if you've got a good team and a system and you're able to get blocks in the pre-op area without a delay, that's good. You know, if you're kind of sitting around and somebody's, you're 30 minutes while somebody's trying to get a block, that's kind of unacceptable maybe. And I mean, I know there's various things, you know, intravenous lidocaine, and that's going to be institutional specific, provider specific. Some people swear by it. Some people are like, that's garbage. You know, doing small things like installing lidocaine prior to your incisions for your ports, like. I don't know, does that matter or not matter? This is kind of getting into the weeds, but I think broad strokes, blocks, I think for prostatectomy, I've heard so many times that, you know, they do so well was the point, maybe a little bit of pushback from your end, or do you feel strongly about it? Yeah. I mean, I love when people say, hey, they do so well. Why bother? I mean, how about you put yourself in that position? Do you want extreme pain or not? You'll do okay either way. So, I mean... <laughs> It's kind of like when you go to the dentist, I mean, they could take your tooth out without numbing you up, right? You'd be okay and you're, you'll heal up fine, but you still get that excruciating pain part. So no, that's not okay with me. I want my patients best we can not to have excruciating pain. Are they going to have pain? Yeah, of course you're going to have some pain at some incision sites, but I'd rather them not have excruciating pain. And thankfully we have all these different tools, all these different medications that are not narcotic that will make them not have pain. And we've proved it over and over that their pain scores by any metric you could decide. And if you're an academic, I will point you to six or seven different pain surveys you could use. You could use all kinds of different domain surveys. And every time we do it, the pain protocol on the non-opioid side is better or the same than with the opioid side. So if that's true, which it is true on multiple, at least 10 to 20 large prospective studies. Why would you put them through? Why would you give them opioids? It makes no sense at all. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. So just to kind of revisit, it's Tylenol, Celebrex, and Gabapentin in pre-op. It's essentially a total IV intraoperative option. And I believe you all use ketamine and Tordol. And I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to ask you to be an anesthesiologist here. No, you can ask me. Unfortunately, I know this. <laughs> so we use a total intravenous anesthesia protocol. So they get infusions in three different lines of propofol, ketamine, and Presidex. So that's how they keep patients asleep. And then when they wake up, they get the first shot of Tordol as they're waking up. And then it's just PO Tylenol and Motrin after that. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And then, you know, I'm sure you all have the early ambulation and incentive and all that kind of stuff. And just out of curiosity, have you all kind of dipped a toe into same day? Is that something that you guys are interested in? I was just about to tell you about that. I know you're excited for me to tell you. Since COVID started, 75% of my radical prostatectomy patients leave the same day. And I have to say that was the easiest sell I ever did because I round on them in the afternoon and they're up walking around looking like a peach. I'm like, you got to get out of this hospital. We're full of COVID. And they're like, okay, see ya. So that was an easy sell when we had the surges in the pandemic. And now since our surge is kind of over, it's still a pretty easy sell. I mean, you know, it depends on where people live. Most of my patients live close. So it's kind of easy just to, you know, go home, you know, 10 minutes away. Um, if they live far away, then maybe there's some trepidation about long distance traveling, which is what I understand. Yeah, I think if you're going to do it, we kind of did the same thing at UT Southwestern and, and are kind of in the process here at UC San Diego. It's going to be, I think, select patients. 
start out with your seven o'clock cases, live close by, access, you know, good access support, et cetera. But um, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's like, you know, we can try to get you out of the hospital as soon as possible without a bunch of COVID patients around. And usually people are pretty much chomping at the bit for that one. I mean, if you think about what you do for a radical prostatectomy patient postoperatively, I mean, you literally do nothing, nothing. So why are you in the hospital for us to do nothing? So it's, you know, it's easy to kind of talk about, all right, you know, I mean, any given person can go and decide to go non-opioid sparing tomorrow, right? But the reality is it's, it's a paradigm shift. It's a mentality shift. It's a culture shift. You know, we're, we're both in academics, obviously. So a lot of the, you know, day-to-day is taking place by residents and there's the PACU nurses who may feel like, oh my gosh, this guy's like inhumane, that there's no kind of, you know, standing, dilaudid or blah, blah, blah. Maybe talk about kind of the, you know, I found the paper that you all wrote in cancer to be really, really nice. And I was involved in, you know, at UT Southwestern and implementing our ERAS pathway and like saying you're going to have an ERAS pathway and making sure that they're not getting like, you know, gallons of fluids on post-op day one or so painful, you know, that they're actually getting a regular diet and advancing and all these types of things is it's real that, you know, that's, that's where the devil's in the details for me. So Maybe talk a little bit about the practical, scalable implementation of a non-narcotic approach. So there needs to be buy-in, not just from the urologist and not just from the anesthesia, has to be buy-in culturally from the hospital. And that sounds very touchy-feely, and maybe it is in some ways, but you have to have the people running the hospital understanding what you're doing. That's your first task, is meeting with the hospital administrators and the PACU nurses and your floor nurses before you start anything. And it's painful because that's not in us to do. You know, we're surgeons, we're acquisitions, and we don't want to meet with administrators as a general rule, and particularly about a project which they have no real interest in. So you make them interested in it. And what we did was we said, this is going to be a quality control, a QI project for our department. And every, you know, every department has to have a QI project anyway. This is our project, and we're going to beat you over the head with it because I was really, I am going to be really adamant about it, and I can be persistent and, shockingly, I can be annoying <laughs> in a pleasant way. So that's what I did, and we, and I was very, very persistent. So I started with myself only. That was before I brought it to the department. I said, I'm only going to do it. It's just me, so it's really easy to remember. You know, I was, I've been here for 20-plus years. I know every nurse pretty much. I know every leadership people. So it was kind of easy for me to hammer my goals. And once I proved more or less that it was easy to do, when we walked it out to the whole department, it was easier to do because I'd already kind of broken through the problems. But yeah, I, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. It is painful to sit with people and tell them, they tell you you're harming patients. Why don't you care about them and all this stuff? But thankfully, there's now data that everybody can use from not just my group, but from Hopkins and from other Sinai comes to mind and music and urology comes to mind. You can bring four or five different stacks of paper with you with the same data uh, and say, look, we need to do this. This We're harming our own community. And to be frank, I haven't looked up UC uh, San Diego's opioid mortality rates. I'm sure they're not great, but I live in the the worst hit area of opioid mortality in the country. So if I tell our community that this is what we're trying to do to help our community, it's a pretty easy sell because everybody here, including me, has had personal relations with people who have passed away from opioid substance abuse disorders. So it's a pretty easy sell depending on, you know, where you are. I think in San Diego, it'd be an easy, very, very easy. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting how various institutions, I mean, and let me back up. I think UC San Diego would be absolutely, if they're not, you know, there may be efforts. I'm fairly new here. I've been here for about five months. There absolutely could be efforts and I have zero doubt that they're ongoing. Whether that's kind of trickled into a primary objective of urology is largely unknown to me. And I do think some of our endourology colleagues have really been on the forefront of using steroids and multimodal pain medication. I mean, we want to talk about stone disease and the overuse of narcotics. I will jump out of this microphone and go crazy. I mean, you talk about an area which actually has been studied very, very well. The, the use of narcotics with stone patients is ridiculous. And it makes me viscerally upset to talk about it. Yeah. I think that they've actually led the charge here and, and are doing quite a, quite a good job. They have. Yeah, they're doing, they've done a lot of good work. And, you know, I, I kind of think of myself as the way I function as a teacher is generally go like the disappointed father style where, you know, we're like, I'm buddy, buddy, people come and work hard because we get along and they don't want to disappoint. The one thing that residents, I think, would tell you when I get upset is when it's non-implementation. You know, every day, my contribution to roundings is, are they on Tylenol or are they on ibuprofen or Tortol? And if I check and they're not, then I kind of come unglued. And I'll actually share without kind of getting into it. Part of the reason that I'm so passionate about this is um, a, a personal experience. My wife had a uterine rupture and was not able to get NSAIDs because she was, you know, concerns for DIC and bleeding. I'm talking like, you know, real platelet dysfunction, et cetera. And it broke my heart. She was just in excruciating pain. And then finally, when the concern for DIC, et cetera, subsided and she got toward all, it was night and day. And now I, I tell the, my residents and fellows that it is inhumane to not, and I know it was an N01, but believe me, I saw that one up close and personal. I'll say it's inhumane to not give somebody that can safely get an inset and inset. So I, it is my one kind of soapbox that I preach, you know, fairly loudly from. Maybe you should increase your preaching from the soapbox. I mean, you should also be, I, I do the same thing when I, that we have all kinds of implement, implementation guidelines for say, cystectomy patients. And I go through the list. I mean, we have it written out. So the residents don't have to use their large brains. They can use their small brains. And if you're not on the, th the things that are on our list of things they have to be on, I need an explanation. And otherwise I'm just like, you know, I'm chill. I'm just kind of almost like social rounds, right? It's like, I'm not here to question whether or not the hydrochlorothiazide needs to go up or down. But if the Tordol's not on, the Tylenol's not on, they haven't started Lovenox teaching, nobody talked to them about their stoma, they're not up walking around, there's nobody talking to them about nutrition, then I will not be happy, right? But all that stuff is easy to do, but it can easily be lost in a busy day of rounding. Oh, that's, this is fantastic, Ben. And, you know, I've, I've certainly learned a lot. I will absolutely reach out about some of these educational contexts at music and if even if it is a large PowerPoint, all joking aside, I think, you know, just to kind of hear it one more time for our department, I see very little downside to that. But I certainly have appreciated the thoughtful way that you've implemented this, that you've been able to study it and, you know, get some great, great content out there. So, you know, congratulations on really being at the front of what I would consider a real problem, but also a real manageable problem. You know, it's often like we do cystectomies and you're like, God bless, like 60% of them get a complication and you're pulling your hair out. I can see I'm pulling my hair out. As you can see, 
this is all systemically patients from back here. Huh? And sometimes I'm just like, you know, what can I do? And, and, and it's hard. I know. But this is something that, you know, there's a very clear, I can do something and change a systematic and systemic problem. And that's empowering, actually. It is empowering. And I think that if your listeners think about how impactful getting narcotics out of people's closets and bathrooms is, sounds so mundane and stupid, but that's where the problem is. That's how it perpetuates. And that's, I could bedazzle your podcast listeners with a thousand different papers on this, but that's how the problem is perpetuated. It's not perpetuated because there are Mexican folks who make heroin or fentanyl now. It's not their fault. They're feeding our addiction. And that addiction has come from inappropriate prescribing. And there is actually, you should know that there's a segment of America that is really pushed back on physicians like me. If I talk about this on social media or something, I get immediately all these people saying, I don't care about pain. Davies is crazy. He's such an anti-narcotic person. I mean, there's really a segment of society and it's almost being politicized. I hate to say this as, as everything in medicine has become politicized, but this has nothing to do with politics. I don't care about anybody's politics in general. And I certainly don't care about your narcotic politics, but I know that I can treat a patient just as well without narcotics. That's what I'm going to do. That's what everybody should do. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good point. And, you know, of course there's going to be unique scenarios, you know, kind of chronic pain patients where I think, you know, working with their pain medicine doctor, and this is, this is painful, right? I mean, tracking down their pain medicine doctor, setting expectations, all that. And that's not what we're talking about today. You know, if somebody's coming in with, you know, chronic back pain. Yeah, that's a different animal. Yeah, that's a different animal. I do also think there's some exciting things and kind of non-medication options, you know, acupuncture, acupressure, biofeedback. That's not my area of expertise, you know, non-medication, anti-inflammatory options. Any opinions on any of that? There are a lot, a lot of interesting things coming, coming down. I'm not that hip to the wellness area. Uh, my wife loves it. Uh, I love her. So that's my hipness to it, but <laughs> I don't personally um, ascribe to it. But there is some pharmaceuticals that are being tested right now, which are non-opioid receptor narcotics, which sounds really bizarre. But there are some new, new therapies coming down the line, which would be interesting. And there's actually some ongoing studies with applying a gel. I can't remember the name of the medicine, but it's approved that we're going to try in the next few months on long incisions to stop that feedback loop of pain right before you even cut them open. So there's lots of stuff in the pipeline. I'm actually not as attuned to the pain technology research as I am into the kind of quality control world. Yeah, well, this is great. And, you know, again, I, I've certainly learned a lot. And, you know, I think setting expectations from time point zero, getting institutional buy-in, really kind of promoting it as a cultural shift and having a champion, you know, that's somebody that's going to kind of hold your feet to the fire and hold others' feet to the fire as well. Yeah, and you have to, tr you have to track it too. Sure. I mean, otherwise nobody cares. So you have, and this all takes money. So you need your leaders, who I know, to give money for somebody to track it. And that requires some money. But somebody's got to track it at least monthly to monthly to see what provider. Why is this one provider when he does cystectomy is giving 30 tablets? And you, you get an email and it shows you what people are giving. Yeah. Suddenly, all of a sudden, that guy's, that him or her won't do it. So, you know, I've, I've learned a wealth of information here, Ben. And do you have any kind of just uh, summary or parting thoughts for the, for the listenership? I mean, yeah. And I've said this before on various outlets, but it's surprisingly easy to do. 
And there's really, you shouldn't have any hesitancy at all to discharge somebody without any narcotics at all, none. It's surprisingly easy in the sense that for the cystectomy patient, you know what they've been using in the hospital. So I would get them to not to zero before you send them home. And if they don't use them in the 24 hours, lots of good data suggesting they don't need them anymore. For the ones you're trying to send home right away, like I re you really should send your prostatectomy patients home the same day, especially the morning ones. I mean, that's, if I was Dr. Kane, I'd be like, what the hell? You guys are killing me with these resources. You could have your overnight staff shortage level cured in one minute. But for those patients, you go, look, you're going to have some pain overnight. It's Motrin and Tylenol. Here's your schedule. And just get up and walk around. You're going to be all right. And if you have excruciating pain that isn't controlled well, call us in the morning and we'll um, get you some right away over electronically. It's not a big deal. And you will find and you will be shocked. You will not get the phone call. Nobody's going to call you complaining. And you just need to do it. That's what I tell people. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.